From The Cut and Gimlet Media, this is The Cut on Tuesdays. I'm your host, Molly Fisher. Here is a question. If you want to make art, how are you going to get the money to do it? And what compromises are you willing to make along the way? Those questions are nothing new, of course. Artists have needed someone to subsidize their work going back to the Medicis. But now that SpawnCon and brands have replaced commissions and Renaissance patrons, the compromises have only gotten blurrier and more confusing. It's a problem I think about a lot. And so does New York Times bestselling author Curtis Sittenfeld. What is selling out? Like, I mean, it's almost like, you know, the Supreme Court definition of pornography. Like, I, I know it when I see it. On this week's show, Curtis is going to read a story she wrote that deals with all this stuff. But first, I wanted to talk to her about what it means to sell out or not. You know, a while back, like Chipotle commissioned different writers. I was not one of them. Very well-known writers, if I'm not mistaken. I think Jonathan Safran Foer was one. Absolutely Jonathan Safran Foer. <laughs> George Saunders might have been one. I would believe that as well. <laughs> to write, like, sort of like little tidbits on, I think it was like on cups or on yeah. bags at Chipotle. And it's funny because I think if I, if I had been asked, and I would frankly say I have a lower profile than, <laughs> than the writers who were asked, I think I would have felt confused and struggled with knowing what to do. But I think I felt like 5% insulted that I wasn't asked. <laughs> I had completely forgotten about the Chipotle cups. And when I went back to refresh my memory, I learned that the whole project had in fact been Jonathan Safran Foer's idea. He had approached the Chipotle CEO, chosen the writers, and edited what they wrote. His own contribution was called Two-Minute Personality Test. And it's a series of questions that begins, what's the kindest thing you almost did? Is your fear of insomnia stronger than your fear of what awoke you? Are bonsai cruel? It does not include the question, would you write a story for a Chipotle cup? But I guess that's a different kind of personality test. What will you say yes to? And what does that say about you? I was invited to write about an item of clothing that I own and like. Mm -hmm. And I wrote about Not Your Daughter's Jeans, NYDJ, for the Wall Street Journal. And several people <laughs> said to me, they were like, were you paid? And it's, I mean, I was paid. Actually, I haven't been paid yet. I'm going to be paid <laughs> what I would consider a relatively modest amount by the Wall Street Journal. I absolutely have not been paid a penny by NYDJ, which it's funny because... If I were, I would feel almost like I would question my own sincerity or I might feel like a little dirty. But the fact that I'm not, there's a part of me that it's like it's like the worst of both worlds. So it's like the appearance of sponsored content without the payoff. <laughs> like giving yourself away rather than selling yourself. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So then I'm, I'm like, well, do I get to keep my street cred if I like shilled for a company but didn't get paid? Curtis has been offered gigs shilling for companies. Once, recently, she was asked to promote a clothing brand in exchange for the brand promoting her. The reason that it was easy for me to say no is that they would write the wording for my tweets. And I was like, there is no, like, there's a lot of <laughs> things I'll do, but I will not let someone else write my words. Yeah. I'm a writer, you know? Like, I, like, it was almost like if you said, wear a wig, I'd be like, okay, I'll wear a wig. <laughs> like, like, it's just that writing is like, it's the thing that I do. And so therefore, 
there's no amount of money that someone, I mean, well, who am I kidding? Of course there's an amount of money, but it's very, very, very high. How high, though? Where do you draw these lines? And what difference does it make in the end? Curtis still doesn't feel like she has all the answers, but she's a writer, so unanswered questions make good material. I think, actually, that I write from a point of confusion, and I think that's actually good for the fiction. Mm -hmm. Like, I like it when I think, well, you know, they both are behaving a little badly, but then they both are making points. I'm not sure if I like feeling confusion in life, but I like feeling confusion in fiction. That confusion is part of what inspired Curtis's story, Creative Differences. The premise is that a corporation that makes personal care products has decided to fund what they call a documentary about American creativity. They've flown a whole film crew to Wichita, Kansas, to shoot one of the documentary's subjects, a young photographer named Melissa. The producer on the shoot is named Ben, and the story follows Ben's perspective most closely. We see Melissa and Wichita through his eyes. I feel like it's jaw-droppingly strange to me the way the Midwest and pretty much almost every region of the country is perceived by the coasts. The Midwest is seen with so little nuance, and it's as if nobody sophisticated or cynical or complicated or interesting lives anywhere other than the coasts. I I feel like it's like a multi-year pet project of mine to write about nuanced Midwesterners and kind of like write the stories that I want to read where it's people who like, you know, make zingy remarks to each other. (laughs) There's a zingy remark population in the Midwest. And so, with that project in mind, we bring you Creative Differences by Curtis Sittenfeld. We'll drop into the story right after Ben and the film crew have arrived in Wichita. Melissa is giving everyone a tour of the college campus where they'll be filming her. Melissa is walking in front of them, and whenever she glances back, Ben is struck by the prettiness of her face. Whenever she turns away, he is struck by the fact that she's a lot fatter than she appeared during the Skype calls that occurred a few weeks ago among her, him, Justin, and the agency people. She has a trim torso and disproportionately big hips, ass, and thighs, and not in a Kim Kardashian sexy way, big in a precursor of frumpy mom way, precursor of his own mother, though Melissa is 24. Ben's assessment is unconnected to any attraction or lack thereof to Melissa. He's gay and tied strictly to aesthetic implications. Matthias will need to shoot her from the waist up. Or, given the ever-increasing fatness of Americans, and given that Melissa is the project's only Midwesterner and least famous participant, maybe they should take her fatness and, so to speak, run with it? This is a question for Nancy, the agency's broadcast producer, and Ben guesses she'll come down on the side of fat concealment. Nancy, who is 50, tends to be overtly sexist in a way most men in 2014 no longer are. Melissa and the crew are walking by a storage room with a kind of concession stand opening and shelves of photo equipment visible behind locked windows when Justin says, Matthias, what if we shoot her in there with all the gear behind her? Melissa giggles. You want to shoot me in the cage with, like, literally not one speck of natural light? It'll look cool, Justin says. Trust me. It's unclear to Ben if Melissa knows that Justin is kind of famous. 
Justin has made two widely praised feature-length documentaries, the first about a youth orchestra in Afghanistan and the second about fracking in a small town in Virginia. If Melissa had, upon shaking hands with Justin, proclaimed herself a fan, it would have mildly disgusted him. But if over the next 24 hours it becomes apparent that she really has no idea who he is, Justin will eventually become petulant toward her, offended by her lack of deference. It is Ben's responsibility to discreetly convey to Melissa Justin's renown. Melissa stands by the door, her arms folded, watching the crew intently. What will you be shooting with, she asks. No one responds. Then Ben says, We use a digital cinema camera called a Red Dragon. A scarlet or a raven, Melissa asks. Justin gives a little snort and says, Well, la-di-da. Melissa seems not to take offense. I primarily shoot stills, she says cheerfully, but I've played around with video. Ben says, it's a raven. As Justin and Ryan discuss whether they'll need fill light, Melissa says, Ben, where are you from? If she doesn't know that Justin is famous, she does apparently recognize that Ben is not. That despite his producer title, he is her low-level point person. Or maybe it's that she can tell he's gay, and therefore she's more comfortable interacting with him than with his slouchily handsome, heterosexually aloof colleagues. Ben says, I've lived in New York for 15 years. Really, Melissa says, you're so young looking. How old are you? I'm 32. Oh, so you're counting when you were in college. Did you go to college in New York? Yes, he says, I went to NYU. Did you start college when you were 17? Frequently on the job, Ben thinks, if I were easily annoyed, I'd probably be annoyed right now. Aloud, calmly, he says, No, I started college when I was 18, so you're right. I should have said I've lived in New York for 14 years, not 15. Where did you grow up? Melissa asks. Delaware, a suburb of Wilmington. He adds, are you from Kansas? She shakes her head. Sioux City, Iowa. I've been trying to think of what to tell you guys to do while you're here. I think maybe Wichita is a better place to live than to visit, but it is a great place to be an artist. There's a confidence with which she says this that Ben finds, what, ridiculous, enviable? He has for four years been working on a documentary of his own about a blind Cuban septuagenarian in the Bronx. He's even received funding from Sundance, but would he ever casually refer to himself as an artist? He says to Melissa, We're here for the shoot, for you. No worries about tourist attractions. Melissa gestures toward the other members of the crew who are still conferring about the LED. Do all of them live in New York? Yes, Ben says. And do you usually work together, Melissa asks? I'm guessing you're freelance. Freelance isn't the right term for someone of Justin's stature. He has his own production company. So on the off chance he's listening, Ben says, I'm freelance, but I work with these guys a lot. Just for this documentary, we've already shot the footage for nine subjects. You're our tenth and last. Have you worked with Parkington before? Not personally, Ben says. No. The reason they are here, the reason Ben is standing in Wichita, Kansas, talking to Melissa Simon, is toothpaste. Parkington, the client, is a multinational maker of personal care products that hired Kitley and Weiss to create an internet campaign around a brand of toothpaste that has existed for 72 years. 
The campaign will feature artists, yes, in fairness to Melissa, artists, in various mediums, and Justin et al. are the ones making the documentary that will show the artists in their daily lives and highlight their individual talents. The other artists are an opera singer who's the only living opera singer most Americans have heard of, a best-selling author of legal thrillers, an 11-year-old who was nominated for a Best Supporting Actress Oscar, a maker of patchwork quilts that depict slave narratives, a former poet laureate, a principal dancer with the New York City Ballet, a Broadway actress, and a husband and wife folk duo who, between them, play 11 instruments. And then there's Melissa, chubby 24-year-old Midwestern Melissa. She's a photographer, which is to say that two years ago, she graduated from the University of Wichita with degrees in both early childhood education and art with a photo media concentration. She currently spends mornings as a preschool teacher, but since graduating, has, rather improbably, made not one but two photo series that went viral. The first, titled Slideshow, featured children, one child per photo, at the preschool where she works, coming down a slide, smiling joyously. The series appeared on an obscure parenting website, then got reproduced in about a million other places. Melissa is white, and all the children in the photos are black. As they drove from the Wichita airport to the hotel, Matthias, who himself is black, remarked that Melissa must have taken the picture of every black kid in Wichita, which prompted Ben to look online at the city's racial demographics. As of 2011, 72% white. Melissa's second series, which she'd been working on prior to the posting of Slideshow, was titled Body Slash Hair. For a year, each time she performed any act of depilation, she documented it, tweezing her eyebrows while peering in her bathroom mirror, shaving her legs while perched on the side of the tub, her toes near the drain, partially obscured by soap suds, the blades of a candy-colored razor set against her calf, and yes, trimming her pubic hair light brown, suitably uncomfortable to behold. In Ben's opinion, the photos are neither artful nor sexy, and he doubts a straight man would disagree. But worst of all, they'd been poorly color-corrected. Of course, only an idiot thinks viral popularity is indicative of quality, and the series was a hit, particularly among women. Apparently, it was the wife of the Parkington CEO who suggested Melissa for inclusion in the toothpaste campaign. Do you travel internationally for jobs, Melissa is asking now, or do you stay in the U.S.? Before Ben can answer, Justin says to him, Can you check what time sunrise is? I wonder if we should get B-roll of her walking around campus with the sun coming up. Simultaneously, Ben says, Actually, the call time tomorrow is 12.30. And Melissa says, I work in the morning. Justin gives her a look that's almost flirtatious. You can't get the day off? Justin's attractiveness is of the stubbly, swollen-lipped, dark-haired, bedhead variety. And he is, for the first time in Melissa's presence, deploying it. Which makes it slightly surprising when Melissa firmly says, Unfortunately, no. Could she also be queer? What's your job, Justin asks. Want Ben to call your boss? Justin, Ben says, we can make her schedule work. Melissa looks at Justin. I teach preschool. Oh yeah, Justin says, your Mary Poppins gig. 
How could I forget? Switching to his warmest voice yet, he says, all righty, this is how we'll do it. Because conceding doesn't come easily to him, good-naturedly conceding Justin, as opposed to peevishly conceding Justin, is the most charming Justin of all. We'll meet here at 12.30. I mean, come earlier if you can, that would be awesome, but starting at 12.30 at the latest, we'll shoot for a couple hours in here. I'll be off camera asking you questions. It'll be a zoo with all the K&W people, but just treat them like static. Ben will be the one running interference, and all you need to do is focus on my questions and be yourself. After the interview, we'll get some B-roll of you walking around campus, driving your car, all that good stuff. Then we'll stop back at your apartment to get you brushing your teeth, although we'll also do that in one of the bathrooms here to keep our options open. Oh, and Ben talked to you about bringing some prints from your two series, right? We want to get close-ups of the photos with your hands. That sounds fine, Melissa says, but the brushing my teeth part, you're kidding, right? Ben and Justin make eye contact. She wants to know if Justin is kidding. Is she kidding? With deliberate calmness, Ben says, all the artists have done it for the documentary. Melissa looks amused, but incredulously so. You're telling me that you filmed Beatrice Chisholm brushing her teeth and Jack and Lulu? Again, Ben and Justin make eye contact. Matthias and Ryan, who were previously talking, also have gone silent and are observing the exchange. Yes, Ben says, we did. Dude, it's in the contract, Justin says. Did you read the contract? Still seeming unpleasantly amused, Melissa says, After I brush my teeth, do I turn to the camera and say, wow, white sparkle toothpaste sure is effective. Her sarcasm and its abruptness are both unsettling. Although Ben met her in person just over an hour ago, he's been talking to her one-on-one and during group Skype calls with the agency for six weeks. The initial Skyping was her unacknowledged audition, a means of determining how attractive and charismatic she was. Sufficiently attractive and sufficiently charismatic were the answers, at least when she was seated at a desk that obscured the lower half of her body. But during none of the exchanges did Ben see evidence of this abrasive streak. Seriously, Justin says, did you read the contract? It's all laid out. Yeah, Melissa says, I read it, but it's like 16 pages and the language in it. I'm not a lawyer. Well, it's all in there, my friend, Justin says. You know what, Melissa says? I finally understand. She looks between Ben and Justin. This is a commercial. I should have realized it. None of you have ever used the word commercial with me. You keep using the word documentary. You keep saying it's a documentary about creativity being underwritten by Parkington. And I'm so dumb, I've believed you. She's gazing only at Justin as she says, I didn't think you'd direct a commercial. So she does know who Justin is, but it would seem that she doesn't know that Justin has directed commercials for, among other products, athletic shoes, luxury cars, and a telecommunications conglomerate. It was five years ago on a car commercial shoot that Ben and Justin met. Melissa glances among them. Do you guys know how much I'm being paid for this? No one responds. $500, she says. You're paying me $500 to make a commercial for a huge corporation. What do you think union scale is, Justin says. I'm lucky to be included, right, Melissa says, because I'm the one nobody's ever heard of. 
But throughout this whole process, ever since you first contacted me, Ben, and during the Skype calls, there was something weird about how you all acted, and only now do I realize what it was. The weirdness isn't that you were trying to get me to be in a commercial for toothpaste. The weirdness is that you were trying to get me to be in a commercial while pretending you weren't. Melissa, Ben says, you're an incredibly talented photographer, and this campaign will get your name and your work in front of a global audience. If you feel like you're not being fairly compensated, I can follow up with Kitley and Weiss and ask for more. We aren't the ones who decided on your payment, but we definitely want you to feel good about this experience. This really is meant to be a fun, cool project celebrating artists and creativity. Melissa laughs an ugly laugh. The question now isn't whether her previous giggly question asking was fake, but what percent fake it was. Oddly, knowing that not only is the chipper demeanor not the totality of her personality, but that she employs it strategically just as she photographs her own body strategically, it makes Ben respect and even like her more. Slowly, she says, I don't think I want to do this. I don't want to be in your, she makes air quotes, documentary. Are you fucking kidding me, Justin says. Hey, Ben says to Justin, why don't Melissa and I go get coffee and you guys can keep scouting? He turns to Melissa. Want to get coffee? As soon as they've parted ways with the rest of the crew, she reverts to being nice again, not acerbic. She orders green tea and he orders a decaf espresso. And after they sit, she says, I did read the contract. I really did. I think I even remember the sentence now. Was it something about agreeing to cooperate with reasonable promotion of the Parkington brand? Because I thought that meant I couldn't be in the documentary and then, like, slander something Parkington makes. Like, I couldn't tweet that their laundry detergent sucks. I didn't write your contract, Ben says. Here's what I care about. What can I do to make you feel comfortable with the shoot tomorrow? She is quiet, seeming to ponder the question. At last, she says... If you'd said, we're making a commercial for toothpaste and we want you to be in it, I'd probably have said yes. That's the irony. It's not like I think I'm too good to sell out, but you tricked me. I get where you're coming from, Ben says, but I wonder if this is partly an issue of semantics. There just aren't such clear demarcations anymore between commercial and documentary content, especially online. She raises her eyebrows. Really? That's really what you believe? Like I said, I get where you're coming from. I don't want you to think I don't. Or if this actually was a documentary, Melissa continues, and you were paying me nothing, that would have been fine too. I never thought people got paid to be in documentaries anyway. She's right, they usually don't, but he doesn't affirm her statement. Honestly, when Slideshow went viral, she says, I felt uncomfortable. Should I have paid the kids whose pictures I took? But also, I didn't make any money. I told myself, Melissa, just enjoy the success and attention that's probably once in a lifetime. Then, a few months later, my shaving pictures got even more attention, and I felt weird about those too, as a feminist, for one thing. And also, I was like, has the entire world really just seen my pubes? Who will ever date me now? When Ben laughs, she says, I'm not joking. I know there's this idea with social media and everything, that we all want as much attention as possible all the time. But one of the things about my early success that's been eye-opening is that I've gotten so much attention and it doesn't feel that great. It feels strange. That's helped me realize that my goal isn't to find the biggest audience. 
It's to be able to keep taking pictures and to find an audience who really appreciates what I do. My early success, an audience who really appreciates what I do, her confidence, it's so bizarrely pure, so uncompetitive. Should Ben move to Wichita? Can I ask you a question? She says, how much is Justin getting paid for this? I truly don't know, Ben says, but he's not a good frame of comparison because he's the director. But like, what's the range, if you had to guess? Ben says, if you're asking if it's more than $500, sure. If he had to guess, 100000 He considers saying 10000 but what if even that sounds high to her? It's just really hard to know, he says. Plus, he has an agent. I'm sure you won't tell me, she says, but how much are you getting paid? He says, if this is about the money, I'm confident we can get you more. The exposure, though, you can't put a price on that. At the rate I'm going, I'll be 45 when I pay off my student loans, she says. Literally, I calculated. And I wish I could get an MFA in photo, but then what? I'll be dead without paying off my loans. I have student loans, he says. I know. It sucks. The truth is that most people in the documentary field don't. They don't seem so different from you, with their shitty apartments and their roommates and their artsy hustling. Then it turns out their parents have a summer house on Martha's Vineyard, Justin, or the way they met their agent is that he was their Harvard roommate's uncle, Matthias. Melissa says, it's just what you keep saying about payment and exposure. Why do I have to decide between them? No right, you shouldn't, you don't. He's not entirely sure why, in this moment, he says, for what it's worth, I'm working on a documentary too. I'm directing one. What's yours about? A Cuban guy in his 70s. He left when Castro came to power, went back to fight in the Bay of Pigs, was sent to a Cuban prison for six months after the U.S. threw all those guys under the bus, went blind due to being tortured. Then he was released back to the U.S. in 62. He ends up working as a cab dispatcher, getting married, and having five sons. Wow. I'm just scared he'll die before I can finish. I need to buckle down. Quickly, Ben adds, not to sound like an asshole. Obviously, it would be sad for his family if he died, and for him, not just for me. She smiles. I knew what you meant. What's his name? Diego Ruiz. Ben pauses. A lot of the time, I'm like, why the fuck am I doing this? Making a documentary is expensive, it's a pain in the ass, I'm calling in favors from my friends. But Diego is amazing. He wears dark glasses, he has this huge belly, and he's hilarious. He's been through some of the worst things that can happen to a person, and he's warm and funny and loves his family. And for some reason, he's trusting me to help tell his story. I know it sounds corny, but it's a privilege. Divulging all this, it really wasn't calculated on Ben's part. It was true. Is this why it works? She says, yeah, exactly. You know in the story of Rumpelstiltskin, how the miller's daughter spins straw into gold? That's what I feel like making art is. Then she says, if you can try to get me more money, I'd really appreciate it. But whatever, I'll be there tomorrow at 12.30. Coming up, will she be there? Curtis returns with more of Melissa and Ben's story. That's after our ads. Part of me feels like it would be funny for me to, like, read the ad but not get paid for it or something. 
<laughs> or if we paid you like just a small, insultingly tiny amount. <laughs> Maybe like if, if whatever you'd usually pay the, a person, you could pay me like 5% of that. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome back to the Cut on Tuesdays. This week, Curtis Sittenfeld is reading her short story, Creative Differences. When we left off, Ben, a documentary producer, had just taken Melissa, one of his film's subjects, out for coffee. He'd gotten her to agree to brush her teeth on camera, despite her reservations about shilling for toothpaste. That night, when Ben and Ryan returned to the hotel from buying egg crate foam at Walmart, a massive amount of barbecue procured by a Kitley and Weiss assistant has been laid out buffet-style in the part of the lobby where the continental breakfast will be served tomorrow morning. Pulled pork, ribs, brisket, as well as coleslaw, fries, and mac and cheese. On the plane ride out, Ben decided he'd have no more than two beers tonight. But Justin is drinking a lot, so pretty soon Ben has had four. Although Justin is married to a dark-haired, incredibly beautiful woman from Venezuela, a model, three times on location when Justin and Ben were both very drunk, Ben gave Justin blowjobs. The third time, Justin also gave Ben a blowjob. Ben is happy to get drunk if he and Justin are going to hook up, but he doesn't want to not hook up and be hungover tomorrow. He has just opened his fifth beer when Nancy, the broadcast producer, perches on the arm of the couch where he's sitting, sets a hand on his shoulder, and says, I hear our ingenue got stage fright today. It's under control, Ben says. Nancy smiles tightly, though it's difficult to discern if the tightness is due to her mood or the work she's had done. Keep it that way, she says. But he's already received the text from Melissa, He received it at 8.56 p.m., and he just didn't know it for a half hour because he didn't feel his phone vibrate. The text says, Ben, I thought about it, and I changed my mind again. I don't want to appear in the documentary slash commercial slash whatever. This is definite. Sorry for any confusion. Ben walks outside to the parking lot to call Melissa. He must stand several feet from the entrance to avoid setting off the automatic doors. What's going on, he says when she answers. I got your text. I just feel too weird about everything, she says. I know I wouldn't be able to relax during the shoot tomorrow and give you the footage you need. Let us worry about that, Ben says. I appreciate your consideration, but that's our job. I'm not doing it, she says. I don't want to waste more of your time. Her voice is neither tentative, as it initially was in their encounters, nor caustic, as it was later. She does, in fact, sound resolute, but more soberly so than angrily. He says, what can I do to change your mind? After a beat, she says, when we were having coffee, you were convincing. You seemed like a sincerely nice person, not a condescending New Yorker who thinks it's hilarious he's in Kansas. And maybe you really are nice. But after I got home today, I was thinking about your documentary about the Cuban guy. You know the difference between a documentary and a commercial. And you're the person who first got in touch with me. You're the one who said from the start it was a documentary. I don't know what instructions you got from the Kitley and Weiss people, but you could have told me the truth. It feels like we're going in circles here, he says. How can we move forward? We want to do right by you, Melissa. See, I think you might actually believe what you're saying, she says. 
I think maybe you're so used to working in this fake way that you don't even recognize it. But I know you won't care if I come off looking good or bad tomorrow. All you care about is getting me to do whatever you've already decided I should do on camera. Ben says, I can give you my word. We have no interest in making you look bad. Your word? She chortles. What if we don't film you brushing your teeth, he says. We just do the interview. It immediately occurs to him that this isn't his bargaining chip to offer, so he's a bit relieved when she says no. Well, if it makes any difference, he says, I talked to the agency folks, and they can raise your fee to $2,500. In truth, he hasn't talked to anyone yet. He's been too preoccupied with Justin and blowjobs, but he's confident he can get this amount. Possibly he could get her more, but if he gets her too much, it will emphasize how they lowballed her at first. He says, I don't know what you pay on your student loans, but for me, that's about eight months' worth. She's quiet again, and he can tell that it does make a difference. But it makes a difference in the sense that it's harder to turn down the additional money, not that it changes her mind. She says, no, and I have to get up early for work, so please don't call or text me again. Of course, Nancy insists on calling her. First, Nancy freaks out in the lobby. She says it's a fucking hostage situation, and she's the hostage and the terrorist. Then she goes outside with Ben to call Melissa from Ben's phone. It's almost 10 o'clock and maybe 40 degrees, and they're not wearing coats. At Nancy's instruction, Ben puts Melissa on speaker, though it's Nancy who's doing most of the talking. This isn't coastal elites trying to deceive you, Nancy says. This is the career opportunity of a fucking lifetime dropping in your lap. Besides which, how could we have tricked you about the nature of what we're doing when you had upteen conference calls with one of the most famous ad agencies in the world? Melissa says nothing. Whether you want to stay in Wichita or move to New York, L.A., or for that matter, Kansas City, being part of a project of this prestige is your calling card, Nancy continues. There's absolutely no question this exposure is in your best interest. The silence from Melissa lasts long enough that Ben wonders if she ended the call. Then, quietly, she says, I don't want exposure. Oh, for Christ's sake, Nancy says. Do you know how many people came here for tomorrow's shoot? Thirteen. Thirteen. Do you know how much it costs to fly out that many people for the hotel, the equipment, the man hours? And because you have cold feet, because you're too precious to be filmed sticking a goddamn toothbrush in your mouth, you think we're flushing $60,000 in expenses down the toilet? That's not how it works, sweetheart. You signed a contract. We'll see you tomorrow. No, actually, Melissa's voice grows marginally louder. I never signed the contract. I wasn't playing hardball. I was planning to ask you about this, Ben, because there's a line where I'm supposed to sign it, and right under, there's a line where my agent is supposed to sign, but I don't have an agent, so I wasn't sure what to do. And I may not be a lawyer, but I know enough to know that if I didn't sign the contract, she doesn't say the rest. In the dark hotel parking lot, Nancy glares at Ben. Yes, this is his fuck-up. But in his defense, getting the contract was on his to-do list for tomorrow. Subjects often don't sign until the day of, and sometimes until weeks after. You know what you are, Nancy says, and it's not clear if she's speaking to Melissa, Ben, or both of them. You're an entitled little millennial piece of shit. The toothpaste campaign is an enormous, unequivocal success. Relatively few people see the full documentary, 
But the 90-second montage of the artists brushing their teeth, which never airs on television, is viewed 52 million times on YouTube. Why is it so enjoyable to watch somewhat famous people brush their teeth? Ben spends a fair amount of time pondering this question. He himself watches the montage repeatedly, even after his involvement with Parkington is complete, and concludes that it's because teeth brushing is universal. It's personal, but not excessively so. The participants seem like good sports rather than exhibitionists, and it's real. Using white sparkle is, of course, beside the point. Everyone in the video does actually brush their teeth. Even people who hire others to do mundane tasks for them, even the opera singer, such people still brush their own teeth. That night in Wichita, after he and Nancy re-entered the hotel lobby and broke the news about Melissa's change of heart, everyone disbanded quickly, with varying levels of irritation and outright rage. But it wasn't as if any of them personally lost money. Parkington was paying Kitley and Weiss, and Kitley and Weiss was paying the crew, and they didn't end up replacing Melissa. They just included nine subjects in the documentary instead of ten. The two calls to Melissa from the parking lot had so thoroughly soured the night, the whole trip, that the question of whether Ben and Justin would hook up was rendered moot. But then, because Ben gave up on willing it to happen, it did happen after all. As they were riding up in the elevator, Justin conveyed a kind of unspoken, sleepy-eyed receptivity that coexisted with, or ran beneath, his overtly expressed contempt for Melissa. But after Ben gave him a blowjob, Justin didn't reciprocate, which wouldn't have felt as bad if he'd never done it before. It would have felt like standard-issue, quasi-straight-guy bullshit instead of a regression of intimacy. Ben occasionally Googles Melissa Simon. He half expects to hear from or about her, at the least in the form of another viral slideshow, but a few years pass without this happening. Based on what he can infer from LinkedIn, she does go to grad school, but not for photography. She gets a master's degree in, of all things, business administration. And on Instagram, she seems to be dating, then married to, a tubby, smiley guy named Mikey. Ben makes a trailer of his existing footage of Diego Ruiz to secure more funding. But after three years, when he hears from the eldest Ruiz son that their father died a month before, Ben has shot 150 additional hours of footage and watched zero of them. Oddly, upon learning of Diego's death, Ben feels the temptation to relay the news to Melissa. He doesn't, though, because there's no good reason why he would. That's it for this week's show. We'll see you next Tuesday. The Cut on Tuesdays is produced by Sarah McVie, Olivia Natt, and Lynn Levy. Our senior producer is Kimmy Regler. We're edited by Stella Bugby and Lynn Levy. Mixing and music are by Emma Munger and Haley Shaw. And our theme song is Play It Right by Amelia Meath, Nick Sanborn, Molly Sarley, and Alexandra souser monick Special thanks to Jen Gann and to Alex Bloomberg, who I think said he went to elementary school with Curtis Sittenfeld's brother. The Cut on Tuesdays is a production of Gimlet Media and The Cut.